Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Time for us to talk musicals, homegrown Australian musicals, and also gay bushrangers, subjects dear to my heart. I'm joined on the line by playwright Gabriel Bergmeiser to tell us all about Moonlight, which is a radio play adaptation of a stage production presented uh, at the Midsummer Festival in 2018. Gabriel, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Absolute, um, absolute pleasure. So, yeah, Captain Moonlight, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating story for anybody who knows it or, or, you know, more pertinently, maybe doesn't know it. So I first found out about Captain Moonlight about three years ago. So it was my friend Dan Nixon who brought the project to me. And he brought me Paul Terry's book, In Search of Captain Moonlight, which is an absolute page-turner and really well worth reading. And, of course, I'd heard of the name before, so I knew there was a bushranger called Captain Moonlight, but I didn't know anything about him. And when I started digging into it, it was just absolutely fascinating. Like, it is one of those stories where you get to the end of it and you just think, how has somebody not made this into a, you know, a massive movie or a stage show or anything? Because it's, it's brilliant. And uh, you know, the life that this person led, when you think about the degree to which we celebrate Ned Kelly, and I say that as somebody who is an absolute fanatic of Ned Kelly, but Captain Moonlight was by far the more interesting figure. I mean, he was a pastor, he was a lecturer briefly, uh, he was in and out of prison, he escaped from prison a couple of times, uh, he categorically proved in a court case that he couldn't have robbed a bank, that later on he was caught for having a chunk of gold that he did steal from the bank. Uh, he was... Just this fascinating figure, but at the heart of his story is this this love story that he shared with one of his gang members, James Nesbitt. And at the point of his final stand when James Nesbitt was killed, Moonlight basically gave himself up, uh, requested for the judge that he go down for all of the actions of his gang, and said that you know he would take the fall for everything provided that he could be buried next to James Nesbitt. And the judge basically said, yep, that's okay. It didn't happen. 115 years after he died, due to actions from a couple of people up near Gundagai, which is where around where his final shootout happened, he was finally exhumed and buried next to James Nesbitt. So this this kind of deeply tender, moving love story had this, this really touching coda that it was actually the first time in history that somebody who wasn't a family member of the deceased successfully petitioned for an exhumation. So so when this was brought to me, you know, I couldn't not. And so we originally staged this for the Midsummer Festival in 2018. It was the first time I'd written a musical. So the music was written by Dan Nixon, who brought me the project. I wrote the script, and it was a very successful production. We sold out every show. We added extra shows. We sold those out as well. It was a very difficult production, a very challenging production in a lot of ways. But at the time, we ran a crowdfunding campaign to turn it into a fully produced radio play, you know, one that could be professionally recorded in a studio, uh, one with the full cast, the full band, everything. And so for the last two years, we've been chipping away in piecing that together. And it's been a really difficult process because it's the first time any of us have done anything like this. But finally, as of yesterday, it's out in the world and released, which is a huge relief. 
I can imagine. Now, you've just given us the, the kind of the full arc of uh, the story of Captain Moonlight and James Nesbitt in kind of a, not quite the elevator pitch, but uh, a, a slightly expanded version. But when I first heard about Captain Moonlight, one of the things which fascinated me was, and as I said earlier at the start of the show, we, we might describe him as kind of a gay bushranger or a queer bushranger. It's very dangerous to use our contemporary lens of sexuality to view somebody uh, in the past. Uh, but certainly the 1878 prison correspondence of Captain Moonlight, a.k.a. George Scott, talks about just how passionate their friendship was. When James Nesbitt was shot and uh, and killed, Captain Moonlight refuses to leave the body behind uh, and uh, takes it inside the house where they've been surrounded and ringed by the police. As Nesbitt lies dying, quote, his leader wept over him like a child, laid his, breast, his head upon his breast and kissed him passionately. And during the court case, he wore a ring made of a lock of Nesbitt's hair and as you've said, kind of the the he wanted them to be buried together. Now, we know that in the past there have been what have been described as passionate friendships, but it certainly seems that this is taking a passionate friendship a step far. Do you think they were genuinely lovers by our contemporary standards? Well, it's, this is a really good question because one of the things that I think is particularly fascinating about Captain Moonlight and probably the thing that drew me to him the most is ambiguity. I mean... Every, every second account you read of Captain Moonlight will be directly contradictory to every first account, and that's partly because Andrew George Scott told so many lies throughout his life and deliberately obscured and muddied so many facts that he's incredibly hard to pin down. Now, one of the women who petitioned for his exhumation, I read an interview with her that came out only a few years ago, and she still swears black and blue that she believes Moonlight and Nesbitt were only friends. Now, I'm thinking if you are passionately kissing somebody as they're dying in your arms, you're probably just a little bit more than friends. My personal belief is that, yes, they were 100% lovers. I think the way Moonlight writes about Nesbitt in his jail cell letters, the way that he said, uh, this is not a direct quote, but something to the effect of James Nesbitt and I were, were united by every bond that can unite men. Uh, we were one in soul, we were one in heart, we were one in, you know, I mean, that, that's, that, that's a very, very passionate way to write about a friend. Um, you are right, uh, applying our current lens and understanding of sexuality to that is dangerous. In writing the play, I was careful not to be too explicit. You know, I, I never come out and say, and, and this was something that we all agreed on, we never wanted to come out and say directly, that these two were lovers, but in terms of my personal opinion, uh, 100% yes, they were. Now, when you were writing the play, uh, was your kind of libretto for the musical, did you base it uh, exactly on prison letters and transcripts, for example? Uh, are we hearing uh, Captain Moonlight's own words in the piece at points, or is this uh, more an act of imagination? Uh, predominantly an act of imagination. There is there is one point where I use his words verbatim, and that was at the very end. The in terms of the words that he uses to describe his desire to be buried with Nesbitt underneath a rough, unhewn rock. The words that are currently carved into the actual rough, unhewn rock under which Nesbitt and Moonlight are buried. That was a case where originally I'd sort of written my own version of it, but when I looked back and when I read. Moonlight's plea, it was so powerful and it was so moving and it just made so much sense to me that the final word in this stage play would belong to him. So, you know, we, we've used snippets otherwise here and there. We've lifted quotes directly from letters, but for the most part, you know, I think it's a fool's errand to try to use verbatim text to make a compelling narrative. You know, I mean, you can use it to a degree, but I think 
uh, sticking too close to the letter of what is understood to be the truth is ultimately going to constrain you and to damn you, and particularly in the case of somebody like Andrew George Scott, in whose life there was there was very little objective truth recorded because, there, again, there was just so much ambiguity and there was so much about him that wasn't defined or wasn't explained or was mysterious. So, as you said, this has now been realised as a, a, a radio play-style adaptation not for to we uh, kind of it may be played on radio at some point, but talk to us uh, about creating this audio adaptation of what was originally designed for the stage. How challenging was it? Because a stage production, the drama is conveyed physically through movement, through action, through direction, through lighting, and more. How challenging was it to strip all of that away and just to focus on the music and the words themselves and the the performers who then bring those words to life? Well. I had a little bit of experience in radio plays previously. A few of my stage productions had been adapted into audio dramas. So, you know, and in a lot of those cases, particularly in something like theatre where it is so dialogue heavy, it's just about, you know, if, if something is referred to obliquely, you refer to it explicitly just so the audience listening kind of knows what's going on. You refer to characters by their names a bit more. In the case of Moonlight, which not only is a full-fledged musical, but structurally the play takes place at the Siege of Wanta Badgery, which directly preceded Moonlight's last stand. And the structure of it is that it's the gang members and it's the, uh, the hostages of the siege basically debating over who they think Captain Moonlight was. And so they all share different stories, and depending on who's telling the story, the bias is slightly different. And that was sort of my way of you know, being able to tell all the different myths and legends of Moonlight without ever settling on any of them being, you know, verbatim fact or real truth. Now, obviously, making that something that is purely designed to be heard is challenging because how do you clarify the shift between present and flashback? How do you do all of that? And that really came down to the work of our editor, Aaron Toman, who has worked on quite a few audio dramas. Uh, i believe he's the he's the head of crossover adventure productions i'm not sure if that's correct but basically he's he's very very experienced in all of this you know writes and produces his own things and bringing aaron on board was an absolute masterstroke because he just has an implicit understanding of how to make these things clear so it was adding the right sound effects it was adding like a little whoosh noise every time it goes into flashback it was sometimes spacing out the dialogue a little bit more so that it's clearer who's talking it was a lot of those things you know once aaron had kind of finished a couple of cuts we got everyone to have a listen to it i sent it through to a few people who were not familiar with the original stage production just to kind of get a sense of whether it was clear or not and you know we cut certain moments that we thought obscured things or muddied things up and so you know it's not it's not a hundred percent the same as what was on the stage there's actually extra scenes and extra songs that weren't in the 2018 stage production and there's a couple of beats that have been removed as well just for clarity so it's look it's a challenge but when you have a really really good editor which we were very fortunate to have uh that challenge is alleviated immensely and gabriel just finally tell us about the music that dan nixon has created uh did he try to create a more contemporary musical style or uh has he been drawing on more i don't know traditional bush ballads of the period for example in which captain moonlight was uh was holding up banks and and stations well, we very much wanted the play to feel like it was lifted directly from Moonlight's world. You know, we wanted this to feel like a rollicking, toe-tapping performance that you might see in, like, the basement of a dingy old pub. And, I mean, we performed the original version in literally the bluestone basement of the Great Starling Hotel where Captain Moonlight is rumoured to have drank. So the music is entirely influenced by that toe-tapping Celtic, you know, slightly bluegrassy style. A couple of the songs in there are actually, you know, adaptations or reimaginings of classic songs. So, like, one of my 
all-time favourite Celtic songs is The Star of the County Down, which, you know, is a love song about uh, a guy seeing, uh, seeing a woman and falling head over heels in love with her. And we actually gave that song to James Nesbitt and rewrote it slightly to be about Andrew George Scott. And so it's a really fun, rollicking, toe-tapping Reimagining, which Ryan Smedley, who plays uh, James Nesbitt, brings to life so beautifully. So, so you know, I mean, the rest of the songs definitely take their cues from those classic numbers. Uh, Dan and I are both hugely obsessed with Celtic music. I mean, we love going to like the Celtic festival and stuff like that. So, this was a real opportunity to kind of, you know, I, I guess put our own spin on those classic numbers and also on that style. I mean, and I, I don't want to take any credit for that because the music and the lyrics are 100% Dan. You know, I, I don't have a, I don't have a musically able bone in my body. I, I occasionally play violin really, really badly, as anybody who lives with me can attest. But uh, Dan's music, I, I just adore it. I mean, I listen to it over and over again. I think it can easily stand shoulder to shoulder with so many, you know, great classic Celtic and bluegrass numbers. And I think the I think the songs really, really create the sense of time and place that is necessary for a production like this. Look, as a final question for you, Gabriel, uh, you've said that Moonlight has now been released so that people can... Uh, kind of listen to it in the comfort of their own home or while having their legally mandated one-hour walk, a phrase I used earlier while talking to MTC's Associate Artistic Director about their Audio Lab series. Where can people find Moonlight if they want to hear this contemporary musical about a gay Australian bushranger? So it's on Spotify, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's wherever you can, wherever you, I guess, find your podcasts, and it's Moonlight, so Moon, L-I-T-E, which is how he spelt his nickname. So if you look up Moonlight uh, on Spotify, it should come up pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an hour long, it's easy enough to find, it's free to listen to, and yeah, we just thought we'd release it a bit earlier than originally planned with the new lockdown laws, because it is kind of perfect for that one-hour mandated walk. So, as you you heard, Moonlight, spelt uh, Moon, L-I-T-E, Moonlight, a musical radio play adaptation of the 2018 Midsummer production by Bitten By Productions. It's out now online, and uh, you can find it through your favourite podcast services. Gabriel, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks so much for having me. The Melbourne International Film Festival kicks off today, streaming Australia-wide and running through until the 23rd of August. Of course, because of the coronavirus, we cannot do what we normally do at MIF, gather in theatres together, stand in queues in the cold, eavesdropping on conversations uh, from the people behind us, talking about the great film they just saw and making mental notes of it so that you can book its next session. Instead, you can watch... MIF 68 and a half from the comfort of your own home. And we're going to talk now about the short film program at MIF. I'm joined by Mia Faustine Rush, the programmer of the shorts at MIF, to talk us through some of the films that are on offer. Mia, good morning. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, it feels like short films sometimes get overlooked in film festivals. There's so much focus on, I don't know, the latest hit from the, the Cannes Film Festival or whatever it may be, that the features and the documentaries, and they get all the, the airtime and the love and the attention, but there's some absolute gems in, the, in short film programs at festivals all year round. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of these films come from those big festivals as well. You know, there's a, there's a huge sort of short filmmaking community that, that um, travels festival festival just like the features. Um, and we've got some, you know, amazing award winners and um, whatnot, obviously not from Cannes this year, but um, from, you know, Tribeca, from um, TIFF from last year, Venice. 
Locarno, Rotterdam, you know, you name it. And films also uh, covering a range of genres and a range of filmmaking styles. So uh, short dramas, uh, animation, and so much more. One of the things that fascinates me about the short film as as a medium in itself is, and it's a bit of a cliche to say so, I guess, but a lot of people think that short films are where feature filmmakers go to cut their teeth. Uh, you make a short and then you move on to make a feature because you've made the short as a calling card, got some uh, some funding or some su- support or a producer or been picked up by somebody to make make a, a major film. But for me, the, the art of the short film is such a, a fascinating one because you can compact down a really rich and complex and nuanced story into a very short space of time if you're a very clever filmmaker. Oh, absolutely. I fully agree with this. I'm I'm very passionate about making um, that sort of known to more people because it is it's such a skill to tell a complete and whole story, um, to to build character, to to establish mood um, in you know often in a very short amount of time. I mean the the sort of definition that we use for short films is the Academy definition, and that's. 40 minutes and under. Um, but obviously, you know, there, there are short films in the program um, that are two minutes in length. <laughs> um, so they can be truly very short. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating... Um, it's a fascinating medium and it's, it's one that's sort of uh, ripe for experimentation and innovation and, and it's a place where people can take risks and, and those risks often really pay off. And it's also a place where established filmmakers regularly return to as well, again discrediting that notion that once you've made your short films, got your practice and your experience, you only focus on features. The, uh, the uh, Greek filmmaker, uh, Yorgos uh, Lanthimos, uh, the best known for the, I guess, being a kind of one of the flag bearers for the Greek new weird with films like uh, The Lobster and so forth. But he's got a, sh- a new short film in uh, Myth this year. Absolutely. Um, so Nimic is, you know, he's obviously a festival darling um, and has, has been at MIF with features, um, you know, over the last, you know, few years. Um, but this is, uh, this film, he's gifted us this film um, starring Matt Dillon um, as a professional cellist who has a strange and sort of life-altering encounter on the train. Um, it screened at Locarno and TIFF um, in 2019 and, and Rotterdam this year. And it's, it's absolutely classic kind of Lanthimos. It's uh, distilled into sort of a 12-minute short. Um, and it's, it's truly one for the fans. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for that one to be screening this year. Talk to us about some of the Australian films that you've selected and why you select them. In fact, let's before we talk about the films, tell us about your selection process. What do you look for in a short film? Are you looking for originality, a, a story that's not been told before, a filmmaking f- visual flair? What's your, your process for assembling the, the short film program? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a, a year-long process. It starts you know, directly after our, our last festival kind of ends. It, it involves uh, thousands and thousands of short films under consideration um, from, you know, all sorts of um, locations on the globe and all sorts of different people, you know, from first-time filmmakers to auteurs. So it's it's um, it's a huge process. Um, and, I, you know, I'm always looking for, of course, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, quality films that, that tell a story in, in, in a, you know, tell a complete story in the time and um, 
you know, looking for that innovation. You know, we also all have to, as programmers, we have to balance sort of the program as a whole. So, you know, you can't have, you know, 14 stories about, um, you know, a lonely man on a mountain. So (laughs) there's, um, yeah, it's all about balance and and seeing what's out there and seeing what what trends are kind of coming through as well. Um, There's often... Often a lot of um, trends, you know, artists love, love to sort of respond to the world events and, and you, you see these sort of filter through and it's it's really interesting to kind of um, see the different ways the artists react to things. Um, so... Um, what, so are yeah, the, what are the trends that filmmakers are responding to at the moment? What have you seen emerging that's, uh, that's giving us a, a sense of a, that kind of shared fascination and focus from filmmakers around the world? I would say that, um, you know, environmentalism is, is definitely coming to the fore. It's definitely, it's obviously, you know, a very, um, it's a well-trodden kind of um, topic over the last few years, um, given climate change and, and all these things. Um, queerness is, is really coming to the screen in a very incredible and, and promising way. Um, there's a lot of really great queer films in the program, the shorts program um, this year, a lot of award winners as well. Um, so it's it's all, I guess it's all about sort of the, the global um, conversation and, and also the national conversation. I think, I think a lot of, you know, this, we're in very odd times, obviously, and, and um, we sort of finalised our programming before, you know, any sort of COVID-specific films could come through. Um, although I did spot a few that came through just right at the end of March. Um, but, uh, you know, there's always the sort of human human um, elements of, of connection and loneliness, and I think that really speaks um, to this moment in time. Let's talk about some of the the individual films. You mentioned queerness as a theme, and one of the short films that's uh, showing uh, is uh, a Teddy Award-winning short film uh, set during the AIDS epidemic uh, in Argentina. Yeah, this is an incredible film. It's it's um, it's put together by filmmaker Agustina Comedy, um, and it features archival footage of this kind of fabulous, you know, underground resistance. Um, uh, of this of this group um, of of transgender women and drag queens um, called Grupo Cabos, um, and it's narrated by Ladelpi, who is sort of one of the last surviving members of that group. Um, it's 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 mournful, but it's also a celebration um, of of the lives that were lost to to AIDS and, and conservative subjugation in in um, a very um, hard time during the 80s in, in Argentina. Um, so, it's, it's a really, it's a deserved winner in my opinion. Um, there, are other, there are other award winners um, that I'd love to point out. Um, Darling is the first Pakistani film to screen at Venice Film Festival last year and it also took home the best short film. Um, so it features Alina Darling who is played by trans actor Alina Khan um, and it's really full of hope and encouragement um, She's really full of hope and encouragement, rather, um, from her boyfriend when she auditions for this Lahore theatre dance production. Um, and director Saeem Sadiq has, has really, I think, definitely kind of unravelled the tra- transgender identity and queer belonging in, in, a, in a world that is so steeped in, in heteronormativity and tradition. It's, it's a really um, beautifully shot film as well. 
If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Mia Faustine-Rush, who's the shorts programmer at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival, MIF 68 and a half, as it's called, which is streaming, of course, online, because, hey, everything is at the moment, at least in Melbourne. I'm looking enviously at other cities like Brisbane, where the live performance sector is already back in action. But uh, here uh, in Melbourne, MIF is happening online, and you can jump onto the website for booking details. We'll talk about how you can watch the films shortly. But, Mia, tell us about the Australian films that are in the, the program. There's always an opportunity to spot uh, emerging filmmakers showcasing their shorts in MIF uh, sessions, which generally always book out very, very quickly in the real world. Uh, tell us about the Australian films in the short program and is there any risk that people will not be able to see them because they'd book out? Um, actually, the Australian shorts, Package um, is is doing extraordinarily well. It's it's probably the top package right now. So there is a chance that it will book out. Um, you know, unfortunately, we have to, we have to have sort of limits on these things um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but it's it's really worth checking out this year. We've got a lot of alumni in this year's program. Um, so I'd love to point out um, a few of them. Uh, Time is the latest film from Nora Niasari, who directed um, Waterfall and The Phoenix, which screened with us in 2017 and 2015, respectively. Um, she gives us this um, one-take sort of nightmare for a woman who wakes up in a strange hotel room. Um, it's a really confronting and confining piece on power um, through the kind of lens of gendered sexual assault. Um, she's really not made it an easy watch, but I think it's, it's an extremely important watch nonetheless. Um, another filmmaker from last year, Madeline Gottlieb, um, comes back to us with a film called Laura. Um, she she uh, returns with this film about two boys who sort of rekindle their friendship over a traumatic shared experience um, from their past. It's, it's a really quietly affecting film um, that portrays this really beautiful friendship between um, the two young men. And she really sort of deftly kind of needles into into memory and, and masculinity. Um, another highlight for me uh, in the Australian Shorts program is The Magai. Um, this is an Indigenous psychological horror written and directed by John Bell. It's a, it's a very cutting exploration of the, of the historical and ongoing effects of colonisation on First Nations people in this country. Um, he John really manages to, to examine also the intersection of those traumas for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Um, even if you're not a fan of horror, it's, it's really worth taking a look at this one. It's um, fantastic. And also speaking of First Nations filmmakers, the other film I wanted to mention, Sky Islands from the Solomon Islands, directed by nine Indigenous Solomon Island filmmakers. Yeah, this is an incredible film. Um, I was really blown away when I saw it um, and I sort of had to really have it in the festival, it's it's such a gorgeously shot film. You know, you know, you immediately want to go to Solomon Islands pretty much after seeing it. Um, but it's so important that that all nine filmmakers are sort of uh, you know indigenous to, to these islands and and have really shown off um, their lands and their culture um, in this in this gorgeous way. I think um, that's definitely one. For, for if you've got a projector to to get it up as big as possible because it, you just want to immerse yourself in in that um, incredible scenery. 
Mia, how do people watch the short films at MIF 68 and a half? Um, so if you go to 2020.mif.com.au, um, you just need to register for an account, but the short film packages are free. Um, it's They'll be available, um, you know, we've got opening night tonight, um, and then all other films are available um, to watch from 11am tomorrow morning. And fantastic that the shorts are free, as you say, because that is also then an incentive for more people to venture out of their comfort zone to watch, I don't know, the animation shorts package or the documentary shorts package or the Australian retrospective shorts package, for example. So to so that people will kind of... Because, yeah, if people can't afford to... Certainly we know so many people in the arts industry, particularly, uh, and in hospitality and other sectors have lost their jobs, lost lost incomes. For people who can't afford the, the main films, to watch films for free... Uh, as a as a MIF viewer is certainly a great opportunity for people to expand their cinematic palette. Absolutely, and I really hope that people um, will kind of come to the shorts programs with an open mind. Um, and really, you know, if you don't like something, you've only got to wait it out for twelve minutes or so. So it's a it's one where you can really take a risk on on the films that you watch. I think. And as I mentioned, MIF 68 and a half kicking off from today, running through until the 23rd of August, and you can watch those films Australia-wide. If you're streaming Triple R from interstate or from regional Victoria, for once you don't have to make the trek to Melbourne to attend the Melbourne International Film Festival, MIF will come to you. So jump online, 2020.mif.com.au. You do need to register for the shorts, but they are free. I've been chatting to the shorts programmer, Mia Faustine-Rush. Mia, thanks so much for joining us at Triple R today. Thanks so much. Have a lovely day. You too. I'm joined on the line by Mary Harvey, who's the creative producer for Families and Children at Art Centre Melbourne, to talk about a show I saw at Art Centre Melbourne a couple of years ago, Bambit's Book of Lost Stories, which I absolutely adored, even though it made me cry at some point <laughs> and laugh with delight at others. It's a beautiful production. It's uh, coming back on the uh, Art Centre Melbourne website, launching as a video this Saturday that you can watch from the comfort of your own home. Mary, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me, Richard. Absolute pleasure. So for people who didn't see Bambit's Book of Lost Stories mm-hmm. when it first uh, was performed at Art Centre Melbourne, it's a Helpman award-winning show created by the Perth-based company Barking Gecko Theatre, who make theatre for children and families. It's a really rich and beautiful production. What's the elevator yeah. pitch? How do you describe it to people to give them a, a sense of what they're in for with this show? Well, um, Bamba's Book of Lost Stories is a beautiful piece of puppetry theatre for um, young audiences. And it's, it's a tale about a man called Bamba who, a bit like us at the moment in Melbourne, um, is isolated in an attic. And he is an incredible writer. And he creates these amazing characters um, who are his companions in his attic. And he really wants the world to read his stories so he sends the stories out into the world in these little balloons um little paper balloons that he creates and he um he writes a letter alongside the story and he asks for people to whoever receives them to um in exchange return um a story to him um with um the stamp from the location that the story has found its new home so, you know, we, we really felt like we wanted to be able to um, 
show this work to more audiences again um, because, you know, stories really connect us and um, they bring comfort in challenging times and I feel like you know little Bamba kind of resonates at the moment for families and and young people who are stuck at home. Now it's a really rich and beautiful production certainly as a a live theatre experience. Yeah. I'm assuming you've watched the video that's going to be available on the Arts Centre website from the weekend. How does it how does the video capture the the magic and the the there's darkness in the original show as well as kind of light there's every kind of every shade uh is in this production does the video do it justice yeah, so this video, um, this video is an is an archival performance. So, um, and what that means is it, it wasn't recorded for broadcasting purposes initially. You know, um, it was really recorded for documentation and for people like me to get to watch shows um, before you know we we curate them into into our seasons. But this is actually a very high quality piece of theatre. Um, there are a couple of dark moments in there, um, but what we um, we let our audiences know when that's about to happen and how long that that's going to run for. We've also captioned the show too, so um, you know we're explaining what's happening in, in those times too. So it's it it it's a beautiful recording and and one that I think is of, of great quality given the fact that it didn't re- know at the time and it's been recorded it would be used for this purpose. It's certainly a, an imaginative triumph as a work of yeah. theatre. A, a friend of mine uh, saw it, the original season of it, I think, in 2016 over in in Perth in WA uh, and gave it a five-star review on Arts Hub. Um, uh, yeah. And one of the things that I loved about it is there's elements of it that I think will confront adults more than children. Children's minds are so much more resilient than, than ours are. There's elements of darkness that kind of parents will know what's going on. The children yeah. kind of, it, it's not going to impact on kids the same way. I cried watching this. I, <laughs> there were moments I cried with joy and wiping yeah. that moment when you're smiling and crying at the same time. And other moments where I was kind of not quite breaking down sobbing, but I was deeply moved by the power of the story and some of the shadows that lie just beneath the mm. surface. And the puppetry is exquisite. It is. And, and you know, that's actually one of the reasons why we've picked this work. It, it, it's the fact that um, it is a really intergenerational work. And um, when we sort of, we've been digging back, looking through the archives of what we've been presenting over the last few years. And, and you know, tr- um, this was a work that, on the day, you know, when you were there in the theatre watching it, Richard, I was there too, and and, and the the audience um, was there was a loads of different people of different ages in that audience. In fact, the the person I brought along with me to watch that show was my partner's grandmother. He was eighty six at the time, and she loved it as well. And I think you know that's why we want to present this because if you're eight years old or in your eighties, you're going to love it. And families are, are separated with one another at the moment they're they're separated from each other they can't gather in an auditorium together but you know they can connect through theatre they can watch this online on our website and they can enjoy it and um, reflect on it together and that's one of the beautiful reasons why we wanted to present this because it's a, a a really great opportunity of a shared experience for different ages.
Now, uh, it's directed by Luke Kerridge, who went yeah. on to become the artistic director of Barking Gecko Theatre, the, the company who made it. Uh, and the design is such a, a rich and beautiful part of this show as well. I think it's Jonathan Oxlade's Jonathan kind of yeah. gorgeous design. Uh, kind of, And it's a story of imagination and storytelling and, and hope. Uh, and as well as Bambit's Book of Lost Stories itself, which is going live on the Art Centre uh, Melbourne website from this Saturday, the 8th of August and available uh, to watch online until Saturday the 5th of September. There's also a, a few other projects and programs associated with it that I wanted to mention. Barking Gecko mm-hmm. Theatre, who've created it, for example, are collaborating with Think Arts in India to create a series almost kind of to encourage kids to, res- to I guess, respond to COVID-19, but in a creative, playful, fun way, rather than yeah. the, the frightened way that adults might be responding when they watch the news. Definitely, and you know that that's a it's a great collaboration between Barco Ge- Barking Gecko and Think Arts. Um, did this this project isolate, create, and connect that they've come up with? Um, it's a uh, it's really it just it actually just highlights the fact that children across the globe are experiencing something together, which is really you know really similar. And they really you know these two great companies from very different countries um, have put together a, a collaborative partnership where kids can record what their experience of isolation is like. Um, so we've, you know, we really encourage people to um, participate in that um, and hope that Sam Burt's Book of Lost Stories and his his um, way of how he copes with isolation um, inspires some creative thinking for that. If people want to watch Bambit's Book of Lost Stories, which I absolutely recommend, it's such a gorgeous piece of theatre, uh, it's available on the Art Centre Melbourne website, so www.artcentremelbourne.com.au from Saturday, this Saturday, the 8th of August, 10.30am yeah. uh, Australian Eastern Standard Time. I mentioned that just in case somebody's streaming us from South Australia or mm-hmm. the Northern Territory where they're half an hour behind us. Um, it's a 70-minute show and then, uh, yes, there are... Other activities also on the same page on the Art Centre Melbourne website. You can make your own wish balloon. Uh, there's a, the encouragement to write a physical, actual letter to a friend instead of sending a text or an email. Uh, there mm-hmm. are radio plays by kids. There's an online puppetry workshop as well. Yeah. So after you watch the performance, uh, there's the opportunity to, to have someone uh, teach you to make your own puppets at home. So a great way not just to entertain and enthrall and delight the young people in your life, but to uh, help them and share some artistic encouragement with them as well. Exactly, yeah. I hope everybody enjoys it. I hope they do as well, Mary. Uh, So uh, that website again, artscentremelbourne.com.au, Bambit's Book of Lost Stories, launching at 10.30am. This Saturday, I've been chatting with Mary Harvey, creative producer for families and children at Art Centre Melbourne. Mary, thanks so much for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Richard. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 